from the perspective of this guy here, the time's passing really quickly. I don't know if that's the case for you or not. We have only about 20 minutes left, but a couple of questions come at, have come up that are, I think, relevant to everyone here. Uh, I've given a couple of ways to get into the pool over the last three sessions. Um, and they're simply preambles. They're just preambles. And that is doing the full body awareness for a while. That's not really part of this practice at all. But what we're doing here is cultivating this quality of awareness without distraction, without grasping, to a rather tangible field that's not difficult to find. Right? So nobody says, oh, I don't know where my body is. I don't know where my body is. Well, okay, that's a problem we don't encounter. So we look at that field, the space of the body, and whatever tactile events, without distraction, without grasping, and we're kind of getting into the mood of it. Getting the rhythm. I can do this. I know what it means, right? And then we shift to this utterly intangible field that you can't locate in space. Oh, it's over there on the right, right? But we bring that quality of awareness, and then the object of mindfulness. I mean, ask it because I'm surprised how many people don't remember. What is the object of mindfulness? What are you attending to when you're practicing settling the mind in its natural state? There's only one right answer. Breath. I said mindfulness, the settling the mind in its natural state. What are you attending to? Very interesting, yeah, nobody got the right answer. Yeah. And they never do, so don't feel bad. But they never do, unless they've heard me and they, they, they've done, done this drill, and then they remember the next retreat, I got the right answer. Uh, not the breath. Not just whatever arises. That's certainly in terms of whatever arises in terms of everything, like an open presence or choiceless awareness. Nope. Somebody said, mental events. Right, but only right. You get a C, you don't get an A, says the old professor. There's only one right answer. And it's not just, how do you say, mm, how do you say, messing around with semantics. Because when you bring to mind what is the object of mindfulness, if you get it wrong, you're going to do the practice wrong. <coughs> you won't be doing the practice. And so there is only really one right answer. And here it is. And now I suggest you, you memorize it, and I've said it probably a half dozen times, but now I have your attention. When doing this practice, this practice alone, the object of mindfulness is the space of the mind, and whatever arises within that space. Now, you'll find on occasion, when you direct your attention to the domain, the space, or the field, I use those words interchangeably, when you direct your attention to that space of mental experience, which means you're editing out or selecting out the five sensory fields. So whatever comes up there, they're going to come up, but you don't deliberately give any attention to them. And they will be left behind when you go very, very far down this tunnel, and they'll all go dormant. Right? If you're giving your attention equally to everything, you won't achieve shamatha and you will not go into the substrate because you're allowing the, the rivulets of your attention to go, flow into all six fields. So when you do this practice, on occasion, and I think some of you have already had this experience, when you're attending to the space of the mind, on occasion, all the cockroaches have gone under the refrigerator and you look in there and you don't see anything at all. Okay, events, come up. I'm waiting. Nothing. You still have an object. It's a space of the mind. That's still there. That doesn't disappear even in deep sleep or in the dream state. That doesn't disappear at all. So there's always an object, and that's important for every shamatha practice. You can't have pra periods in a shamatha practice when there's simply nothing to attend to at all. right? And so the space of the mind is always there. Now, within that space, as you attend, and especially as you loosen up, soften up a bit, then the event mental events will start coming up. And then you attend to them, whatever comes up within that domain. You do deliberately attend to that in the way described before. And then they vanish, and for a few seconds you may not have anything. You do have anything. You have the space of the mind. So it's the space of the mind, of the mind, not all the senses, only the mental, 
and whatever arises in that space. Okay? That's important. So it's not choiceless awareness. It's not open presence. It's not a bunch of other things. It's just this. It's samadhi practice. It's shamatha practice, which, by the by, can give, a, give rise to a very, very important and transformative insights. Hence, it's on the cusp between shamatha and vipassana. Right? That's one question. Second question, a lot of you must have, at least implicitly in the mind, and that is, do I really have to keep the eyes open? If you're an old Vipassana practitioner, a Zen practitioner, and so forth, eyes closed is very common. And for mindfulness of breathing, there is no uniform instruction about what to do with the eyes. I've heard from Zen, Theravada, and Tibetans of different sorts. They say different things. Eyes open, eyes hooded, and eyes closed, which means do whatever you like, right, for mindfulness of breathing. The instructions for the settling the mind in its natural state are uniform. So it probably is not trivial. Keep the eyes open. But then he said, wait a minute, but it's distracting, and my eyes get dry, and I don't really like it, and it's uncomfortable, and I'm not used to it. All of that is understandable, but it was for non-trivial reasons that they said keep the eyes open. I won't go into it now because I want to meditate. But what I would suggest is this time here with a room full of people, and not everybody is as still as a mountain physically, uh, especially when there's movement in your field of vision, that catches the attention. And I think there are very, very strong evolutionary reasons for that. If something's going to eat you, it will move first. <laughs> Unless you're already dead, in which case you're still and they're moving inside. You know, but that's different. Uh, but, so we have a very, very strong, a powerful impetus behind us from an evolutionary perspective. Pay attention to the things that move. You might be able to mate with them. You might be killed by them. Both of those are important for survival and procreation. Right? Um, and so it's very difficult to really remain... A, to sustain a real focus on the mental field when the thing's happening, flickering of a candle, incense smoke coming up, let alone people moving about and so forth, that's just a distraction, it's a nuisance. And in which case, what I would do, and I do, because I often have a little bit of elevation here as the teacher, and so I often will hood the eyes a lot, so that even if people are moving up here, my vision is down here. because I, I want stillness. And moreover, I don't want bright lights, I don't want anything that's glaring that catches the attention. So, when you're in control of your environment, which none of us are here right now, what I would suggest for this practice, if you wish to do it, is practice it initially in a very softly lit, or if you like, even a dark room. My preference is twilight, really soft lighting, with no bright colors, no flickering candles, nothing. Boring. Soft lit. Boring. So everything taking place in the mind is more interesting than what's taking place in the visual. And so there the eyes are, and as if you are just lying down and daydreaming of something really interesting, oh, my, my vacation in Tahiti, what will I do? What will I do? You really won't be aware of what's in your visual. With your eyes open, you won't be aware of it. And you won't care, and you won't think, oh, I've been daydreaming about Tahiti too much, my eyes feel bad. Nobody says that. Right? <laughs> so let the eyes be relaxed, blink whenever you like, totally rel- just normal, normal, normal. Right? So don't let them become dry. So that's that. There are good reasons, but there isn't, isn't time right now to discuss why keep the eyes open. But I say for both pragmatic and deeply philosophical reasons, really good reasons. They're not trivial. So that's what I would encourage. Having said that, if you really want to keep your eyes closed when you're doing this practice, I will not hunt you down and punish you. <laughs> there will be no punishment at all. Nobody will know. <laughs> so do whatever you like. But the Wisdom of a thousand years says, if you can do it with the eyes open, a little bit better. At least a little bit open. Okay? We're going to have a short session, so let's make hay while the sun shines.
Settle your body in its natural state and your respiration and your inner voice in their natural state and rhythm. Now, simply as a preparation, let's count just 10 breaths without missing a count, one count at the end of each inhalation. Gently open the eyes at least a little bit. Let your awareness come out into the space in front of you without attending to any visual object. It's like parking a car in a garage and walking away. Park your visual gaze in space. Then walk away and redirect your attention now to the domain of mental experience. You may kickstart this practice by deliberately generating a discursive thought or a mental image. Allow that thought or image to, sp- to fade back into the space of the mind, back into the substrate from which it arose. And then keep your attention right there attention single-pointedly focused to the space of the mind, hovering like the kestrel in the sky in the present moment, to whatever arises.
Let's bring this session to a close. So we have just a couple of minutes, if we're really punctual. Time to respond to one other issue that was just raised during the break, and that is for people following the Vipassana tradition, especially that stemming from Mahasi Sayadaw, so for this recent Burmese tradition, with Upandita and later teachers. One very common method that I'm very familiar with is labeling. So as you're trying to maintain your mindfulness, of course, it's extremely easy to get carried away again and again and again, and you're no longer mindless, mindful, you're kind of mindlessly meandering about in thoughts. And so one skillful technique that's been introduced there, and as far as I can tell, it's maybe a 20th century innovation, uh, is to label. So you're sitting there, perhaps practicing choiceless awareness, perhaps following the breath, thoughts, images, and so forth come up, and to break the, break the flow so you're not just sucked into them and carried away indefinitely, then there's a practice of labeling. So, future planning, memory, emotion, feeling, happy, sad, and so forth and so on, or even bird sound, truck sound, knee sensation, and so forth, and that is a way of bringing the attention back to the present moment. So good enough. But frankly, for any kind of practice of this sort, there's always a cost-benefit analysis. There's always pros and cons. And everything I've taught here, there are pros and cons, so I'm not suggesting anything I'm teaching is an exception. Uh, What that does is it just keeps on locking you into a conceptual grid, and it also breaks the flow of mindfulness. So one has to, I think one has to ask, I would ask, clearly there's benefit, otherwise this, this, this fine monk and teacher, Mahasi Sayadaw, would not have introduced that. So there's benefit, but at what cost? And, for example, in putting training wheels on a bicycle, there's cost-benefit analysis on that too. That is, when you're first learning how to ride, you know, not falling over is a big benefit, and having the drag of those wheels is a certain cost, right? At some point, pretty much everybody takes off the training wheels. Labeling, labeling, labeling is trainer wheels. Counting breaths is trainer wheels. If you keep on counting, you're breaking the flow every single time you do it, right? So at what point is it really counterproductive? I would say for this practice, of, and now I'm shifting gears. I was talking about Vipassana, but I think it's got to have a limit where you just, this is just an interruption. This is a nuisance. For heaven's sake, stop already. Uh, now I'm going to come back to this practice. Settling the mind is natural state. If you're doing labeling, labeling, you're just not doing this practice at all. That's just not. Because every time you label, you're gearing up your whole conceptual system, and you're intruding into the flow of experience, and you're grasping. That's a man. This is a thought. This is this is this. It's grasping. It's exactly what we're not to do in this practice. So I would suggest don't do it at all in this practice. And then rather than trying to corral this wild stallion of your mind by labeling things and bringing it back, bringing it back like a dog on a leash, there's one, one approach, and it clearly has benefits, but that, that benefit is by doing something, yanking it back, yanking it back. This is the thought. That's an emotion, blah, 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 yanking it back. And we're doing just the opposite in this practice. Child holding a handful of balloons, releasing. Every time you find the mind has been carried away, rather than yanking it back with a label or a reprimand or you're such a loser, you know, things like that that help so much, um, <laughs> just relax. You know, with a big happy smile, like Thich Nhat Hanh speaks of mindfulness of breathing, with a smile. You don't actually need to smile, but you know, with this gentle attentiveness, looking after, tending to, watching over and caring for kind of ambience, 
just happily release. Every, every time you're snagged, release. But here's the catch. Here's a crucial point. And that is, we're not letting go of the thought. This practice is non-preferential with respect to thoughts. Big thoughts, little thoughts, happy thoughts, sad thoughts, whatever they are, the response is homogenous. And it's not letting them go. It's letting them be. And that's a fundamental distinction between mindfulness of breathing and this practice. When you're practicing mindfulness of breathing, what's your object of meditation? The breath, and not anything else. Right? Now, eventually, that will go to the acquired sign, the, the, the counterpart sign, and on we go. And you're going to go right into the domain of the mind, and you're going to leave behind those tactile sensations of the breath. Thoughts are just a nuisance. They are just a distraction. And every time a thought comes up, you just release it. You don't have a conversation with it. You don't trace it. You don't take an interest in it. You don't label it. It's just like, release it. Balloon business again. For this practice, you don't release the thought. You release the grasping. So the thoughts continue to flow. And on this note, I'll end, as, as we're now into over 12 o'clock. But I, since I travel a lot, since I'm driving from my own experience, I, since traveling a lot, I spend a lot of time in hotels. And this has happened many times, and I think it's not alien. I'm sitting, minding my own business, maybe even meditating in my room. But there's a couple in the next room, and they're having a real big conversation. Right? And they're going on and on and on and on. And I can actually understand a fair number of their words. I am not a participant in their conversation. I happen to be in a space where that conversation took place, but none of their words are mine. I didn't generate them. I don't control them in any way. They're just happening in my space. That's when you're really subtle, when you're really loose, and thoughts and images come up. It's like hearing a conversation that somebody else is participating in in another room. Right? The images come up, you didn't do them, you didn't keep them, they just rise and they pass. And so there's that, and that's where the stillness comes in. That if it's an argument, and I've heard arguments, then you want to take sides, right? Football, football game, who wants to watch a football game and not take sides? You know, it's all even, one taste. Then turn off the television, for heaven's you know? And so there's no participation, there's no preference, because you're not involved, you're not doing it. It's just arising in that space. And I think this is where, again, it's a beeline to insight to really attend closely. Is the space of your mind, specifically of mental events, is that any more really yours than the space of auditory perception? Is that your sound? Or when a, a crow flies by, is that your sound? Your crow? A fragrance comes up, is it your smell? Maybe, but not likely. So really, as we look at the six domains and the contents of each of the six domains of experience, attending in the closely, and as the Buddha said to Bahia, in the seen let there be just the seen, in the heard just the heard, the felt just the felt. And then he comes, he skips smell and taste, he says, oh, you know, oh, whatever. Get to what's really dominant in our experience, then the mind and what's arising in space of the mind, in what is mentally perceived, let, let there be just the mentally perceived. And attend closely. To see, is there any trace of I, me, or mine in any of the six domains? Then we're definitely moving over into the Vipassana well. Okay? Good. So for shamatha, don't clutter the practice with anything that would stem the flow of your mind dissolving luminously with tremendous stillness into the substrate. Because that's where we're going. And the Buddha said of this, with respect to Satipatthana, core of Vipassana practice, 
He said, Satipatthana is to be practiced after you've ascertained the sign of the mind, citta nimitta. Citta nimitta. If you want a baseline, so you're really superbly prepared. Now, he wasn't being dogmatic and saying, you cannot practice Vipassana until you've done this. But if you want to derive the full benefit of Satipatthana, the core Vipassana matrix of practices the Buddha taught, then he said, first of all, apprehend the sign of the mind, citta nimitta. The sign means, the word sign, nimitta, means different things in different contexts. Here, very good reason to believe, sign means the salient characteristics, the core qualities, the essential qualities of mind. Ascertain that, and then use that as your launching pad for attending to the body, feelings, mental states, and all other phenomena. But get it straight. And that sign of the mind, I am utterly persuaded. That's a bhavanga. That's a substrate consciousness, where you now know the essential nature of the mind. Not ultimate mind, but just what's the ground state of your own mind? What are its core qualities? So interesting, isn't it? I never teach this in a bored fashion. I can't be bored about this stuff. It blows my mind. I hope it just gets blown totally. Waiting. <laughs> Let's come back at 1.30, so people you need to go to Fairfax, get in your jalapis and take off. We'll come back at 1.30, so we'll have a full three hours for the afternoon. And we'll have some segue and then go into the other aspect of this retreat. Oh, what about the heart? Are we just cognitive creatures, or is there something else going on? So we'll look into these four measurables this afternoon, too. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.